0: Welcome once again to our study of portrait of John a portrait of Jesus based on the gospel of John good evening glad that you've joined us and we're looking not at John's life but we're looking at Jesus life and we're glad that you've joined us tonight as we are into our Bible study 15 sessions that we will be going that will take us until Christmas and I'm delighted that you've joined us last week we got started in looking at chapter 1 the first 34 verses of the Gospel of John, and we're looking at his Gospel primarily to see uh, a, what, a picture of Jesus or a portrait of Jesus based on what he said primarily. Now last week, Jesus didn't say anything yet, but tonight he will as we look at the study together. Grab your devices, grab your Bible, follow along with me verse by verse, as we, tonight we go from chapter 1, verse 35, through the end of chapter 2, chapter 2, verse 25. So while you're getting your Bibles and devices together, I want to lead us in a word of prayer, and then we will get started. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for who Jesus is. Thank you, Father, for the privilege of talking about Jesus being fully divine, fully human, 100% God and man as the perfect redemptive sacrifice for us. And thank you, Lord, that John sets out who Jesus is and and as we hear his words beginning tonight, I pray that you will bless and use this study in our lives to help us have a greater understanding and a greater love for you. God, thank you for those who have joined us online. Thank you for those who are here tonight in person, and I pray your blessings upon them as we study your word together in Jesus name I pray. Amen. Well, we got started last week in looking at the first chapter and We saw last week that John is different than the other gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are the synoptic gospels, are the the gospels that see together the life of Jesus. You lay out their gospels, the chronologies, the order, uh, the things that he did, the things that he said are all pretty much the same order. And then you get to the gospel of John and 90 to 93% of what John records for us, not recorded anywhere else in Matthew, Mark, or Luke. So John is unique, his perspective, and it's interesting to see because he tells us a lot of what Jesus said. You can tell a lot about a person by what they say. You've always heard actions speak louder than words, and they do, but words are important. Words reveal our heart. Words reveal what's buried in our heart. In fact, Jesus said that. You can tell, James, both the brother of Jesus said, you can tell what's in a person's heart by the way they talk or what they, what they say. Someone may say, well, this comes out of my mouth, but that's not what's in my heart. Jesus and James both said, no, that, that's not true. What is in your heart will come out through your speech. So words are very important. You've heard the phrase, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. That's false because words do hurt. Words are very important. And so we're looking at who Jesus is based on what he said whenever he was here among us. So we're looking at his words. Now last week we saw that John began his gospel, chapter 1. It's called the prologue or the pre-word where he tells us the, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. He talked about Jesus at creation. And then went imedi- immediately into the life and ministry of John the Baptist. And that's where then uh, we pick up tonight. John was baptizing. He explained when the religious leaders came out as to who Jesus was. And so tonight we get to the point where Jesus is calling his first disciples and then the first sign or the first miracle that, that John records that Jesus did uh, pick up in chapter two. So take your Bibles or devices, chapter 1, verse 35, and let's look at letter A on your outline. Jesus calls, <coughs> excuse me, calls the first disciples, verses 35 through 42. Verse 35. The next day, again, John was standing with two of His disciples. We stop there for a moment. Notice he says the next day. We start off uh, when in verse 29, he says the first time the next day, which probably would have been Monday. Then we go to verse 35 where he says the next day, which is probably Tuesday. Why are these days important? I'll tell you in chapter 2 when it says on the third day. And so, we'll get there in a moment. But now it's verse 35, the next day, probably Tuesday, what we would know of the week. John was standing with two of his disciples. Now, what does that mean? Well, John had followers. John the Baptist had a lot of followers. In fact, he began preaching out there. His message was so revolutionary and so powerful. His lifestyle was so odd that people, he, people were, were drawn to him. And then they went out there. They loved what he had to say. He baptized, and he had all of these followers out there. In fact, we saw last week that by the time John wrote his gospel, there was a group of followers called the Mandeans, who actually were the early Christian community. They were basically a cult, but they were in the early Christian community, and they believed that John the Baptist was greater than Jesus. Again, they were called the Mandeans. There is still a Mandean cult today, talked about last week, south of Baghdad, Iraq, a group of them there, who still follow John the Baptist. They believe that he was greater than Jesus. And so John wrote in chapter 1 attacking that belief in the early church, saying even John didn't believe that. John was saying, I'm not even worthy to untie sandals. And so we see that. So John is standing there, verse 35, with two of his own disciples. And he looked and he saw Jesus as he walked by in verse 36. And he said, Behold, the Lamb of God. That's twice he said that, two days in a row. First day Jesus walked up. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The next day Jesus walked up. Behold, the Lamb of God. And you see a pattern with John the Baptist. He is always deferring his life to Jesus' life. It's always not about John even though he was popular and had followers. It wasn't about him. It was about the Lamb of God. and He always deferred to Jesus. That's a great lesson and a great pattern for us, isn't it? Your life really should not be about you. My life should not be about me. It's about the Lamb of God. It's about Jesus. And we too should be pointing as people see us. It's not about us. It's about the Lamb of God and that's what I love about John the Baptist. Behold the Lamb of God, verse 37, the two disciples standing by John heard him say this and they left John and went and followed Jesus. Now think about that. You're John the Baptist. You're getting popular. Your name is getting out there. You're having followers. People are flocking to hear you and Maybe there might be a little ego in that, maybe. But you don't see it anywhere in John the Baptist. And then Jesus walks up and two of John's followers standing beside him, John, we love you, you're wonderful. Oh, there's the Lamb of God. And they leave you and go follow Jesus. There might be a little jealousy in that. There could be. Not with John. You don't see it with John. So they left. They left. John and went to follow Jesus. And notice what Jesus said. First time he spoke. Verse 38. Jesus turned, saw them following him and said, what are you seeking? He didn't say, whom are you seeking? He said, what? In other words, what do you want? I mean, you would expect Jesus' very first words out of his mouth in the gospel to be, oh, thanks for following me, guys. And so uh, you're going to be blessed by following me. Thanks. Join the group. Let's go. He just turned to him and said, what do you want? Jesus always wants us to declare our intentions in following him. Why do you follow him? So life would be easy. Somebody will answer your prayers. You get what you want. Because you get to go to heaven? Why are you following? What do you want? I'm following because I know that He is the only Savior of the world. He is 100% God and 100% man. He is the the only Savior. If I want to have a relationship with the Father and have my sins forgiven, I must follow Him. That's why I follow. Why do you follow? So he turned to the two. What what do you want? And they said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Now, why would they say that? Because whenever you went to a rabbi or teacher and you stayed with him, that meant you were a follower of his, the 12 disciples. They stayed with him 24-7, three and a half years. That meant they were one of his disciples. And so this is the two followers way of saying, we want to follow you. Where are you staying? And he said to them, come and you will see. This is a phrase that you see throughout John where Jesus will say, come and see. Come and see. And I love that. It's like, if you want to know who I am, if you want to know what I'm about, follow me and you'll see. There is also, this is one of the first phrases Jesus mentions in the Gospel of John, there is also an interplay throughout the ministry of Jesus between light and darkness, sight and blindness. And you will see throughout Jesus' ministry, why did he heal so many people that were blind? It was a metaphor. That when you follow him, you can see Before following Him, you're in the dark. When you follow Him, you're in the light. When you do not follow Him, you're in the dark. And you see the interplay, light, darkness, sight, blindness, all through Jesus' ministry. Same today in our world. If you follow Christ, folks, you're in the light and you see. If you're you're lost tonight, you're in darkness and you're blinded to spiritual things. So notice one of the first phrases. He says, come and you will see. And they will. Verse 39. So they came and saw where he was staying. And they stayed with him. That day for it was about the 10th hour. That's about 4 p.m. in our time frame. Wonder why it tells us that they... Well, at what time it was when they followed him? Four o'clock. Verse forty. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. So Simon, I mean, so Andrew was a disciple of John the Baptist first, and then left John the Baptist and went to follow Jesus. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. Verse 41, he first found his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. So Andrew realized, hey, this is the Messiah. And the very first thing he did was he ran and got his brother Simon. Brought him back and said, Simon, Simon, guess what? This Messiah that you and I have heard about as little boys, this Messiah we've heard about one day is going to come. We would hope it would be in our lifetime, but we didn't know. We just knew he was going to come one day to save Israel. Guess what? Simon, he's here. I saw him. And he went and got his brother and brought him to Jesus. Every time you see Andrew mentioned in the Bible, he's not mentioned much. But every time you see him mentioned in the Bible, he's bringing somebody to Jesus. Boy, that's a great trait, isn't it? Every time you see some, someone, they're bringing them to Jesus. And every time you see Andrew, he's bringing somebody to Christ. We found the Messiah. Verse 42, he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. Now there was a play on the names there. The name Simon meant pebble or a little bitty stone. The name Cephas means boulder or rock. So Jesus, knowing what Peter would become later on, said, right now you're Simon, you're a little pebble. You're you're just joining me. You're just believing in me. But one day I'm going to make you a rock, a boulder, you're gonna go from a pebble to a rock. I guess you might say he went from pebbles to rocky. He was he went from just a little stone to the big boulder that became Cephas or Peter, Petros, the rock. I wonder if Peter thought, what's he talking about? How does he know my name? How does he know what my name means? And he's using a play on words to tell me later what my name's gonna become. And we're not told how Simon responded. Go to letter B on your outline, verses 43 to 51. Jesus calls Philip and Nathanael. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now, I find it interesting that Jesus, whenever he approached his disciples... He simply said, follow me. That's all. He didn't say, hey guys, look, I have this, I have this great opportunity that you're going to, to, to have to follow me for three and a half years, and your life's gonna change. And he didn't explain anything. He just said, follow me. That was it. He didn't say, I have this new philosophy, I, I have this new teaching. Hey guys, I'm the Messiah. He never explained why. He just said, follow me. And today I hear so many people, well, Pastor, I'll, I'll become a believer when I learn more. Well, I'll become a Christian when I, when I discover more, when I find out more. I need to study first. You need to follow first. And as you follow and give your life to Christ, then you learn and you grow. But you follow first. Follow me. Verse 44, now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. So they're all from the same hometown. Probably knew each other. These towns were small. Bethsaida is still there today. It means house of fishermen. Bethsaida was a fishing village. So it was basically fisher town, I guess you might say in, in our vernacular. But Bethsaida was the house of the fishermen. Probably Philip was a fisherman. Andrew and Peter a fisherman. Philip, the name, the, the name Philip, means lover of horses. Uh, so maybe he was involved in, uh, in equestrian. We don't know, but he, he was from the same town as Andrew and Peter. And then Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote: Jesus of Nazareth, the son of. Joseph. So Philip went and found Nathanael. Nathanael later on became Bartholomew, same person, Nathanael Bartholomew, Bartholomew the, uh, the followers of Christ, disciples of Christ. So he found him and said the same thing that Andrew said, we found the Christ. And it is he is Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Well, verse 46, Nathanael said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Because Nazareth was a small little village. If you're thinking Messiah, if you're thinking leader, he's probably going to come from a military family. He's probably going to come from a, a large Jerusalem or some other place. But why would you come from a carpenter Joseph and a little bitty town of Nazareth where it's just an out-of-the-way place? And so Nathaniel thought, How can the Messiah come from Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. Wait a minute, that's the same thing Jesus said. Come and see. Verse 47, Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. So Nathanael's walking up and Jesus initiates the conversation. Ah, oh, it's Nathanael, a true Israelite who's really true and pure. He's an honest seeker. And Nathanael's kind of blown away. Wait, wait, hold. How did you know me? Nathanael said to him, verse uh, 48, How did you know me? Jesus answered, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathaniel answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the king of Israel. Now hold on a second. What what was this fig tree? What was going on? Here's probably what happened. Now we're tra- having to read between the lines here. But here, here's probably what was going on. Under the fig tree was a phrase that that people who were honest seekers would go, if you you went under fig trees to sit under the shade of them, because they gave great shade, to read your Bible, read the Torah, read, read Scripture, and to contemplate on Scripture. So evidently what was happening was Nathaniel was probably under the fig tree, studying the Torah, thinking about it, meditating about it, And he's probably thinking about, God, when are you going to send the Messiah to come? They thought about that often. And they read the Torah often about it and Scripture about it, the prophets and the writings. When's the Messiah going to come? So just imagine. Imagine you're Nathaniel. And you're under the fig tree reading and contemplating on Scripture. And as you read, you're thinking, God, when are you going to bring the Messiah? When are you going to see, send the Messiah to us? And you're contemplating this. And all of a sudden, someone interrupts you, and it's your friend Philip. Philip, uh, Nathaniel, yeah. oh, Come, come and see. We found the Messiah. He's here. I was just reading. I was just thinking about this. What? I was just, I was just thinking about it. He's thinking this. Come, I found him. He's here. I'll take you to him, Jesus of Nazareth. And on the way, imagine you're Nathaniel and you're walking, and as you're walking up, he mentions, Ah, hey, Nathaniel, there you are, a true Israelite who contemplates deep things. You're thinking, How's he know my name and what I was just thinking about? And then he says, Philip, I saw you under the fig tree. That's how I knew you. How did you know I was under the fig tree thinking about the Messiah? And so he exclaims, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And Jesus, verse 50, responded, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, you believe? You'll see greater things than these. You think that's something? Oh, you haven't seen anything yet. And he said to him, Truly, Truly I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. He could be talking about the baptism. He could be talking about the transfiguration. He's talking about greater things Nathaniel is about to see rather than just saying, I know what you were thinking under the fig tree. There will be greater things that Nathaniel would be a part of as a follower of Jesus than just knowing what you're thinking. Well, let's go to the wedding at Cana, chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, the very first miracle Jesus performed. Chapter 2, verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, so it's very possible it could be Wednesday now. We don't know, possibly Wednesday. That's when weddings usually started. Wednesdays. They usually last a week. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. Cana is a small town about 13 miles from Bethsaida, so they weren't far from where they they had been called. About the same size as Nazareth, very small village. And the mother of Jesus was there. Doesn't call her Mary? Why not? Maybe because there were so many other Marys in there. We didn't in the Bible. He didn't want to get confused with anybody else. So he just simply called her the mother of Jesus. Verse 2. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. Now hold on a second. Jesus was invited to a wedding. Weddings were feasts. They were celebrations. They were fun. You only invited people you wanted to celebrate with. So Jesus was so well-loved evidently in this community of Cana, Nazareth, northern Galilee region where he was raised. He was so well-loved just as a social person they wanted him to come celebrate. Sometimes we see Jesus so serious and so stoic and walking around these and those all the time. He must have been a fun guy or they wouldn't have invited him to the wedding. They celebrated, they danced, it was, a, it was a feast. Warren Wearsby says, Blessed is any couple who invites Jesus to their wedding. And he's right. So they invited Jesus and his disciples to the wedding. When the wine ran out, verse 3, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. Now let's stop for a moment. Why would that have been a big deal? Well, the groom, it was his responsibility and his family's responsibility to provide the feast for the wedding, which included wine. Now, this is just a parenthetical side note. The wine in, that's used here, that's the word that's used, oinos, meant fermented grape juice diluted with water. They did not have distilleries in, in that day that we have in our day that makes the alcohol content of wine very high, like it is today, their wine was different. I know people say, well, wine's wine. No, no. Wine's not wine. And this is not a passage about alcohol or the lack of drinking alcohol or not drinking alcohol. That's not the point of the, of the story. I think there are other passages that you can point to. I'm a firm believer in abstinence, not drinking any alcohol at all. I don't think believers should drink alcohol, and I think you can make that case. This is not the place, but other places in Scripture because that's not the point of the story. But I will say that the wording that's used here is interesting because it's not the what's called strong drink. That's where the alcohol content was high, higher, not nearly what it is for us, but higher in that day. The word wine was basically fermented grape juice that had been diluted with water couple of good authors on this, Dr. Norman Geisler talks about it, Dr. Robert Stein, both talk about the difference of how wine in Scripture is different than our wine today because of alcohol content being so high. So, wine in this day would not be the same. By the way, there's a difference in the Bible between wine and strong drink. Wine was the fermented grape juice, strong drink was where the alcohol content was a little higher. The Bible talks about drinking wine, but it, does never, but it condemns the strong drink. Jesus never drank strong drink uh, in Scripture, and so that's where the alcohol content was higher. That's just a side note, but I didn't want to mention it because some people use this passage to talk about alcohol. This is not really the passage because it's not the main point, but there are other passages that you can So it was the groom's responsibility and his family to provide for a week-long feast. They get there, and on the first day, the wine runs out. I mean, left. he got a whole other six days to go. And so, it would have been great social embarrassment. In fact, they could have even sued. They, they could bring a lawsuit against the groom and his family, the, 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 those that attended their wedding, if the wine ran out or if the food wasn't prepared correctly. You could bring a lawsuit. So there are a lot of implications that are going on here. After only one day the wines ran out, the embarrassment, the anger, the feast has now turned into not a celebration at all, Possible lawsuit so there were many things involved here and so Mary came to Jesus and said they don't have any wine now why would she do that first of all she knew that her son was the Son of God when was she made aware of that well we know even before his at the conception she knew he was different she knew he was from the Holy Spirit and she knew he was of God and she knew he could do something about it miraculously. And so she went to him and said, Jesus, she didn't tell him to do anything. She just made a statement. The wine's gone. And Jesus' response sounds a little harsh to us. Woman, what does that have to do with me? My hour is not yet come. Now, woman was a term of respect in those days. It's not today. You call some hey woman, that's not a term of respect. You say, ma'am, it is. Well, woman in that day is like us saying ma'am. So it's a term of respect. And then whenever he said, what does that have to do with me? It's his way of saying, I haven't begun my public ministry yet. My time hasn't started. And his mother said to his servants, she didn't respond to Jesus. She just turned to the servants and said, do whatever he tells you. That's good advice for us, isn't it? <laughs> Whatever he tells you to do, do it. Whatever he tells me to do, do it. Now verse 6, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water And they obeyed. They filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. Imagine what faith it took for those servants. Those servants, okay, we'll fill it up with water. And then he said, okay, now take some of it to the master of the feast. And they're thinking, it's water. It's not wine. This is going to be even further embarrassment. And this is, they're going to get angry at us. We're bringing water to them. It should be wine. But they obeyed. And when they took it to them, it was wine. It's not just wine. It was the best wine. When did it turn? In the jar. When Jesus touched it. When he blessed it. As they're going. When the master of the feast got it. We're not told. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Verse 9, the master of the feast called the bridegroom. In verse 10 he said, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you've kept the good wine until the last. It was better than what they had to begin with. That's how Jesus works. He always gives you something better than what you've had. Always. Verse 11. This is the first of his signs. John's going to use that word many times. They're miracles, but John calls them signs. Signs that he is God, divine. Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory And his disciples believed in him. Now, let's wrap up the uh, wedding at Cana just for a moment. What was the point of this? Many times in the Gospels, wine is synonymous with teaching. New wine is the new teaching, the old wine is the old teaching or the old traditions. Wine could be the new way, the new teaching, the new way that Christ brought. The old wine is the old traditions of the religious Pharisees and Sadducees and religious leaders. And that's why Jesus said, you don't take new wine, put it in old wineskins. You don't take new teaching I brought and put it in the old tradition. It doesn't work. It rips. It doesn't work. And so Jesus is showing symbolically the very first sign that he did. The new teaching has come and it's better than the old. Jesus uh, was bringing a new way. There was new wine made from old water. He talks about living water that comes from an old well, chapter 4 with Jacob's well. He talks about a new birth from the old birth in John 3. He talks about a new temple that needs to be cleansed. It comes up next from the old temple. And so now with this very first sign, he is telling us the new is coming to replace the old. You've heard it said, but I say unto you, I'm fulfilling the old and making it new. And so that's why, that's, that's the main point of the wedding, at Canaan, the water turned into wine. Verse 12, after this he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples and they stayed there for a few days. Why would he put verse 12 in there? That's kind of, that's, that's not really earth shattering, is it? But remember, talked about last week, John, one of the groups that developed in the early church, John's addressing This group that believed Jesus was not human. John tells us he was very human. He left the wedding. He went down to Capernaum. He walked with his mothers and his brothers and uh, his disciples. And they stayed a few days. He's very human. He does human things. So he adds that to show his humanity. Go to letter D on your outline. Jesus cleanses the temple, chapter 2, verses 13 to 22. Verse 13, the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, if he's at Capernaum, if you go to Jerusalem, you are ascending. Jerusalem is kind of like Denver, sits on top of a mountain. And if you're at Capernaum, you're around sea level or so, and then you're going up to Jerusalem. It's geographically going up, and John notes that. Passover was at hand. Jesus went up. To Jerusalem, verse fourteen. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. So let's get a picture. As you go into the temple, there would be the outer court, the court of the Gentiles. That's where you. That's the very first place you approached. Out here you would have people who would be selling animals. Now the reason they did that was sacrifices were required inside. You had to have a sacrifice when you came. Most people did not travel with animals. It was too hard to travel with animals. You just bought them when you got there. That was not the problem. That's not what he was condemning. You also had to have a special currency known as a temple currency. Temple coins so, whenever you got there, you exchanged your currency for their currency at the temple, which was a currency exchange. You had those sitting there who would gouge the people for coming to offer sacrifices. They would charge them an exorbitant amount for the animals, and then the conversion rate of the currencies extremely high. And so they were making all this extra money on people coming to pay reverence to God. And that's what angered Jesus, that they were out there who were making this killing off of the people coming simply to offer sacrifices to the Lord. And it angered him. Verse 15, he made a whip of cords And drove them all out of the temple, the money changers, with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned the tables. Remember, he's a very strong man. We talked about that a couple weeks ago on Sunday morning. Jesus was a tecton by trade. That would be a carpenter, which could also be a stonemason or a woodworker. But didn't have the modern technology. They had to do it by hand and force and strength. He was a strong man overturned the money changers and overturned the tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. And his disciples remembered Psalm 69, 9. Zeal for your house will consume me. And they remembered what the prophecy was about the temple and Jesus' response. Now, why is the cleansing of the temple right after changing the water into wine? It's a reason. Jesus, as you go about his ministry and his life and their teachings in the rest of the New Testament, what you see is a pattern. Conversion and then cleansing. You see conversion, water and the wine, and then you see cleansing of the temple. And that pattern is throughout. Conversion and then cleansing. The new birth, you're cleansed. You're converted and then you're sanctified. You're cleansed. You're converted and then your life changes, it's cleansed. You see that? The conversion and the cleansing all the way through. Theologians have noted that as they study the gospel. John, in fact, I know a lot of people today, they want to be cleansed before they're converted. I want to get my life right. I want to clean up some things in my life before I come to Christ. No, you've got the order backwards. You're converted, and then you let them do the cleansing. So the conversion of the water to wine and then the cleansing of the temple, and they went together. Verse 18, so the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. They're thinking, they're, they're thinking he's talking about the physical temple. Verse 20, the Jews then said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you'll raise it in three days. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered he had said this, and they believed the Scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So here's what happened. Jesus overturned all the money changers of tables, and someone said, what what sign do you have that you have the authority to do this? Jesus could have just answered them straight out, but instead, he kind of gave them a parable to think about. And he said, "Destroy this temple, I'll raise it in 3 days." Somebody's body. And they went, "It took 46 years to build this temple. Herod had refurbished it." And they and you're going to raise it in 3 days? Jesus though was talking about his body. And then it tells us verse 22, that his disciples, after the resurrection, had remembered what he said. When, aha, he was talking about his body. His body, was, his body was the temple. That's what he was talking about. And they remembered the words that Jesus had spoken. Now let's go to the last section, verses 23 to 25. Jesus knows what is in humanity. He knows what's in your heart. Verse 23, now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing, the miracles that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about him, about man. For he himself knew what was in man. Now hold on a second. What in the world is that passage talking about? There have been some that have said, well, uh, this goes to Reformed theology. This goes to Calvinism. There are some that want to believe in Christ, but they're not the elect. So therefore they can't be saved. That's not what he's talking about. That is taking taking what you believe and imposing it upon the Bible. You can make the Bible say anything you want if you take your beliefs first and then go to the Bible. It's the wrong way to approach theology. Read the Bible first and let the Bible develop your beliefs and your thoughts and your theology. He was not talking about Calvinism. What he was talking about was this. There were beginning to be people who saw that Jesus was a miracle worker, a sign worker. And they believed him just for the sake of the signs. They didn't believe him because he was the Messiah or the Son of God or he was salvation or eternal life. They only believed because they saw the miracles. They didn't believe in him as Savior and he knew that because he knew what was in in their hearts. So, those that do not believe in him for the right reasons, he does not entrust himself to them, they're not saved. There may be those today that follow Christ for the wrong reasons. Maybe they make a decision because somebody wanted them to make a decision. Maybe they're baptized because because somebody wants them to be baptized. I I had a man one time in one of my previous churches, he wanted to be baptized as a, as a birthday gift to his wife. Not because he believed in Jesus, but he just knew that would tickle her and that would thrill her. And I said, no, you have to believe in Christ. It has to be your decision, not a birthday gift to your wife. There are people that follow Christ for all kinds of reasons other than believing him to be the only Savior of the world. And they turn their life over to him and follow him. <clears throat> but there were some who were not following him. They were simply believing for the miracle's sake. And he did not entrust himself. They were not saved. And those today that follow for the wrong reasons are not saved. Only those people who submit their life to Christ, follow him, and believe him to be the only savior of the world. Only those are saved. He entrusted himself to them, but not to those who only believe for the sake of the signs. Well, next Wednesday night, chapter 3 of John is one of the great chapters in all the Bible. I hope that you'll join us next week as we go through all the verses of John chapter 3 as we continue to look at a portrait of Jesus by looking at the gospel of John chapter 3. Next week, you're going to like it. Let's pray together and we'll close. Father, thank you for the opportunity again to study your word Thank you, Father, for what you teach us through it. And I just pray you'll continue to guide us in the right ways, following you for the right reasons. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. God bless you. Hope you have a good rest of the week. We'll see you Sunday.